Welcome to the teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel South London. You can visit us at calvarychapelsouthlondon.org. Welcome everybody. If you're new as we say, my name's Robert, I'm one of the pastors here and we are in the process of going through a study in the book of Acts and it's looking at the history of the early church where in the midst of joining Paul and his team on their second missionary journey and today's topic is whoever said ignorance is bliss well they lied Acts chapter 17 verse 16 through to 34 is what we're going to be looking at and as you're turning I just want to say I'm so greatly encouraged not just by the community group that I'm a part of on a Thursday but apparently the other community groups as well brothers and sisters are coming to the groups with their notes that they've been taking in the services and someone actually said in our group it's been a blessing and it's been it's been a help to them because it causes them to listen more keenly on a Sunday morning. And that's what this is about. We want to hear the Lord speak to us to the point where it impacts and affects our lives. Amen. So Acts 17, I'm going to be reading from verse 16 through to 34, the whole chapter, the rest of the chapter anyway. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. I'm reading from the ESV. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And he took hold of him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know therefore what these things mean. Now, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What? Therefore, you worshippers unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. 
yet he is actually not far from each one of us for in him we live and move and have our being as even some of your own poets have said for we are indeed his offspring being then God's offspring we thought we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone an image formed by the art and imagination of man the times of ignorance God overlooked but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed the day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead some mocked but others said we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysus, that Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. I don't know if any of you watch um, a program that comes on, I think it's weekly, called The Gadget Show. And on the gadget show, what they do is they review. <laughs> you laugh like you didn't expect that. What they do is they review new products that come out, like new gadgets, right? And every week they're looking at something new. Today we're going to meet a group who are similar in a sense. We read it in verse 21. It says, Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. Last week, as we began Acts chapter 17, we saw Paul continue on his second missions trip along with Silas, Timothy, and Luke, his team. And they leave Philippi and they arrive at Thessalonica. You can see it behind me on the map. Verse 2 and 3 says that Paul reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. Remember we looked at that last week. And verse 4, and some of the Thessalonian Jews were persuaded, but some Jews were jealous, and they persecuted Paul and Silas. Particularly when they actually even left and they went to Berea where they met another group of Jews who were more, no, were more, were more noble or more open-minded than the previous group. Because this group in Berea, they received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures, how often? Daily, to see if these things were so. Now this was great, as I said, until the bad mind troublemakers come from Thessalonica because they heard about this and they come again and they agitate and stir up the crowds we saw in verse 13. And verse 14 says, Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea that is south from where they were. But Silas and Timothy remained there in Berea. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens. So they travel south via the Aegean Sea until they come to this place called Athens. Now Athens was a very large city. It was a beautiful and busy city. It was a metropolis. 
People came to Athens from other countries to study. It's like a university city. And to, to trade their, their wares. It's the home of Socrates, Aristotle, Plato, Epimenides, and Alexander the Great. The city's most famous building was a temple. Anybody know what it's called? Then if you've been to Greece, it's called the Parthenon. It had been, check it, it had been standing for over 500 years prior to Paul actually even coming to Greece. It was located on a rocky hill called the Acropolis or the High Place. Greece was a very religious city. The ancient Greek divinities, they were numerous. You had firstborn elemental beings that made up the fabric of the universe, the earth, the sea, the sky, night and day. Then you had the human affecting spirit gods like sleep, death, love, hate. You had Pan, Neuros, Eos, Triton, etc. There were sky gods, there were sea gods, underworld gods, agricultural gods, rustic gods, titan gods, deified mortals who became gods. There were over 30,000 gods who were registered in this city. And the 12, yeah, registered. I don't know about the unregistered ones. The, the 12 great Olympian gods who ruled and served, or should I say were served by the lesser divinities, these main 12 were Zeus, Hera, Neptune, Dionysus, Apollo, Vulcan, Artemis, or Diana, Mars, Aphrodite, Athena, Demeter and Mercury. Seven male and five female. Yet out of them all, Athena was the patron of Athens. She was the protector of the city. She had her own temple where she was worshipped called the Temple of Athena. And <clears throat> you can see the statues they weren't just in the temple. They were part of the temple. And we see that Athens is characterized by fashionable agnosticism. Fashionable agnosticism. Now, <clears throat> agnosticism is, what do you think about God? Well, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm not sure. Typically identified by Paul in verse 23, he mentions an altar dedicated to who? I don't know. It's the God that's unknown, the unknown God. And this is the heart of agnosticism. The fact that there were so many gods all around proves that no one is sure which God is God. This indicates that the typical view in Athens was agnosticism. It's, you see, there's only one certainty, and it's that you can't be certain. Ag agnosticism says, I don't know, and I can't know. Our first verse, verse 16 says, Now while Paul was waiting for them, that is Timothy, Silas, and Luke, 
at Athens. <clears throat> now, we're not sure just how long Paul waited for his companions, but in the meantime, check it. He had ample opportunity to observe the state of the city. And verse 16 says, his spirit was provoked within him. Something inside Paul was disturbed. Have you ever had that experience? You're standing there and no one would know because it doesn't show on the outside. But on the inside, you're greatly disturbed. And you might even have a smile on your face, yet internally, you're having a crisis. See, um, what was the reason for this internal agitation? It says his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. I mean, they were everywhere. This is a modern day building in Athens. They're not just statues of people. These are statues of gods, quote unquote. They're everywhere. And it says the city was full of idols or it was covered with idols or it was submerged under a plethora of idols. A contemporary writer at the time said it was easier to find a God in Athens than it was to find a man. And Paul's spirit undoubtedly was provoked within him. Maybe Paul feels a little bit like Lot back in the day, remember, who was surrounded by ungodly behavior whilst living in Sodom and Gomorrah. Second Peter 2 verse 8 says that his righteous soul at that time was vexed, it was troubled, it was tormented. Now very often we find ourselves in these situations and like Lot, we often do nothing. Based on our actions, or lack of them, people wouldn't know that we are having an internal crisis. Because that which takes place on the inside stays on the inside, but not for Paul. As a result, verse 17 says, Paul made a beeline for the synagogue, as was his custom, to reason, to discuss, to argue, and to dispute. First of all, not with those who were guilty of idolatry, notice. Paul doesn't go on a rampage kicking over idols and pulling down statues. No. Paul goes to the church, the ecclesia, the body of believers, albeit Old Testament believers. He goes to the synagogue. Notice where the Jews and devout persons were. Verse 17. And also to the marketplace. How often? He's on a mission. He's like Ray Comfort, or should I say Ray Comfort's like him. Ray Comfort is an evangelist who says that he will never allow a 24-hour period to pass by without him sharing a gospel with one individual. See, every day with those who happen to be there in the marketplace, I mean, Paul is a man who really has his mind set on things above. The brother is constantly on a mission. And, we, and, and here are some of the people that he speaks to, verse 18, some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. Both groups are agnostic. First of all, the Epicureans. 
They don't believe in divine intervention or anything spiritual or superstitious. They were materialists. They attacked irrational Greek mythological religion. Epicurus declared that pleasure is good. An absence of pain was the greatest pleasure. Although I hasten to add that they were not extreme in their pleasure-seeking. It wasn't hedonistic. For example, eating a piece of cheesecake can be a pleasurable experience, right? if you like cheesecake. What Epicureans did, or what they did advocate, is nothing in excess because pleasure actually becomes pain if carried too far. Eating the entire cheesecake at one sitting can lead to a painful stomachache, right? So hedonism was not encouraged. In the main, they lived a virtuous and temperate lifestyle. Yet, their advertising campaign slogan would be, eat, drink, and be merry, because tomorrow we die. Minimize the pain, maximize the pleasure. Because in their mind, all we have is this world. You cannot be sure of anything beyond the immediate, they say. Well, how about the second group, the Stoics? They, on the other hand, though, <clears throat> they were also very equally earthbound. They said, the world is governed by powers we have no control over. Their slogan would be, endure suffering and adversity through the virtue of self-control. Ain't nothing we can do about the difficulties, but you know what? We're going to affirm it, and we're going to go true, and we're going to be self-controlled about this. Their motto would be, grin and bear it. So, of these two groups, some said, verse 18, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. Now, there's nothing new about Paul's message we see, but they actually thought that he was speaking about two gods, a male and a female god, a male god called Jesus and a female god called Anastasis, which is basically what resurrection is in Greek. Verse 19, and they took hold of him. Now, this is not in a bad way, not like the Jews before who gripped him up and wanted to either throw him in prison or beat him up. Mm -mm. They took hold of him and brought him to this place called the Areopagus or the Rock of Ares or Mars Hill which was named after Mars, the god of war. Now, the reason they took him to the Areopagus was because whenever someone proclaimed the virtues of a new god or a new religion, there would normally be a person of great wealth and influence who would be able to purchase expensive land for the building of an, enor of an enormous new temple, which would provide jobs, there would be feasts and festivals. You would be someone who would be investing 
a lot of money in the city. So when Paul shows up to speak, they see a business opportunity. So they bring him here to the town hall or to the Department of Trade and Industry, to the Areopagus, so that Paul can have his God approved. So he can get planning permission to build his temple and get a license to practice his religion, adding Jesus to the other 30,000 other gods in Athens. And Paul shrewdly is going to grab this opportunity with both hands. He will contend for the faith, as it said in Jude 3. And he will contextualize the gospel. He will contextualize the gospel. And this is basically what it is. It's communicating in understandable terms appropriate to the audience. Communicating in understandable terms appropriate to the audience. It's what we do every week in children's ministry. Making the message appropriate for that particular audience. It's making the message relate. And Paul does this. In a minute, he's actually going to quote some of the Athenian literature. He's going to do it twice. They say in verse 19 and 20 that this is a new teaching. It's strange. It's like, what does this mean? And they love it, right? Because they love it. New stuff. Verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, what an opportunity, said, Men of Athens, which was a term of endearment. He was being respectful. This is the same way that Socrates would introduce one of his discourses. To this important council that Paul is standing before. And Paul is calm, he's cool, and he's collected. And he says, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. And he actually means this positively. He's not having a dig, he's not being sarcastic. He's making an honest comment based on honest observation. Verse 23, for as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, see, Paul must have been very observant. I mean, as it's been said, there are a whole heap of idols in this city. And in order to find and identify this particular statue, I mean, it must have taken some searching. It'd be like finding a needle in a haystack. Thousands of gods. So we get the impression that Paul, hmm, I mean, this is very interesting and very challenging because what is the natural inclination when one doesn't like what one has come across? I sound like, I sound like the queen, isn't it? <laughs> what happens when you're surrounded by stuff that you don't like? You either start making up a holy per noise, judging, pointing the finger. I know I can be like that. You know what I mean? If I come in and the dishes ain't done, I'm like, I want to point the finger. I want to say, how comes this and how comes that? See how some of the girls laughing. You know what I'm saying? Either when you're in a situation where you don't like what's going on, you either pipe up and say something, Right? Or you do everything you can to get away from it. See, the Bible says that we are supposed to be in the world, John 17, 
right? But we're not supposed to be of it. But very often, how would you, wouldn't you agree that most of us as Christians sometimes can be in the world? No, tell a lie. We're not even in the world. We're supposed to be in the world, but we're not supposed to be of it. But very often, we don't want to get involved or touch anything that's worldly. See, we want to stay pure and untainted, and that's good. But not at the risk of not engaging. We need to be aware of what's happening whilst maintaining our sanctification. So that's why sometimes I will watch Waterloo Road. I don't particularly like the program. There's a lot in it that I really detest. But I will watch it sometimes so that I'm abreast of Wagwan. You know what I mean? Now, I, I must admit, don't ask me nothing about Emmerdale Farm, Coronation Street, or EastEnders, because I, I cannot stomach them ones. But what am I saying? I'm saying that, you know what I'm saying, we need to be in touch, right? Because if we're in touch, how are we going to touch and affect people's lives who are surrounded by that? It's beautiful what we see Paul here doing. Now, this is a point that we can talk about further in our community groups this week. So Paul is getting up close and personal, as it were. Near enough to show that he cares, but not to the point where he begins to compromise. And he discovers an opening. Not a way out, but a way in. I suspect at this point Paul was communing with God as he searched for some way to connect. Walking around the streets of Athens saying, Lord... This place is distressing. But Lord, what can I do to communicate to these people? What can I do to reach out to these people? These people are lost. And then I suspect the Lord shows him. Now I wonder if Paul got excited at this point. I mean, without being judgmental, after carefully scrutinizing the sinfulness that he was surrounded by, Paul says... I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. I can hear Paul saying, yes, here is my way in. Now, what therefore you worship as unknown, Paul says, now this I proclaim to you. See, the word agnostic comes from the Greek word gnosis. Gnosis, spelt with a G, with the negative prefix A meaning not. See, so gnosis is knowing or knowledge. Therefore, agnosis or agnostic is not knowing. And whenever you bring up the topic of religion and someone says, oh, you know what, that religion stuff, well, boy, I'm an agnostic. Well, it's a statement designed to politely end the conversation. It's a respectful way of saying, I'm not really interested. But if you take the Latin equivalent, not agnosis, but ignora, the Greek Agnostic becomes the Latin 
Ignoramus. <laughs> now that doesn't sound very clever, does it? And this is where Paul, with his amazing mind, his spirit-filled heart and mind, is able to detonate an explosion that demolishes their arguments. See, fashionable agnosticism is actually responsible ignorance. They are guilty. They are culpable. Who told you that ignorance was bliss? Jump down to verse 30. The times of ignorance, God overlooked, but now, now he suggests. Now it doesn't say that he suggests, does it? No. It says, at one time God overlooked, but now God commands all, not some, Oh, not white. Oh, not, not female. Not. God commands all people everywhere, everywhere to repent. Verse 31, why? Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed and of this he has given assurance to all how by raising him from the dead and Paul says you're right you don't know or you're agnostic but that doesn't make you innocent there was a time when God overlooked your ignorance but not anymore Okay, says Paul, you describe yourself as those who don't know. Well, let me tell you three things that you don't know that you don't know. One, God is not served by human hands. God is not served by human hands. And we see that in verse 24 to 26. Go back to verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it being Lord of heaven and earth. He does not live in temples. Temples, brick-built buildings made by man. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. God is not served by human hands since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath. And he just sums it up. And everything. And he made from one man, that is Adam, every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and times and boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek God. You're not where you are because you determined That they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. Verse 28. For in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets, some of your own songwriters have said. For we are indeed his offspring. See the, the real God 
You see, the point is the real God doesn't need you to build something for him to live in. He has actually built something for you to live in. It's called planet Earth. He doesn't need you to take care of him. He has and is actually taking care of you. He sustains your life. You don't sustain his. <laughs> and your next gulp of air is completely and utterly dependent on him. Who you are, where you live, when you were born, it all happens completely and utterly independently of you. See, that's the first thing you don't know. Well, some of your poets know it, but you evidently don't listen to their lyrics very carefully. The second thing that you don't know is God is not like an image made by man's design. God is not like an image made by man's design. Verse 29, being then God's offspring... We ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and the imagination of man. So, every one of these insufficient images that you've made, they actually testify against you. None of these figures could ever represent God. Furthermore, while you're out there trying to create images to represent God, he created his image in you. He created you in his image to represent him. You're trying to create images to represent... Genesis 1 says God created man in his image and likeness. And check it. Because we failed, God became a man and finally determined to represent himself. His name is Jesus. And verse 31 says that it is he that will judge the world. And you can be assured of this because God raised him from the dead. I declare to you, says Paul, that which you did not know Previously, but you know it now. Oh, and the third thing, says Paul, I need to update you on, since you're such an inquisitive bunch, you who appreciate new things, is that God is not far from each one of us. God is not far from each one of us. And it's in verse 27. Check it that They should seek God. In the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. He is actually not far from each one of us. God has made himself findable. And actually, it's not even a case that we find him, right? He's the one who actually finds us. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost. But now I'm found. 
I was blind, yet now I see. See, I was the one that was lost. I wasn't clever enough even to know that I was lost, let alone to go looking for God. It was him that come and found me, and I suspect he came and found you also. Well, Paul then sums up his message with a call to them. And the call to them is for them now to respond to. Verse 30, the times of ignorance God overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he has fixed the day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by the resurrection. Verse 32. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead. Check it. Some mocked. But others said, hmm, why? We ain't heard nothing like this before. You know what? We will hear you again about this. We want to hear more about this. Verse 33. So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him. And believed. Among whom also were Dionysus the Areopagite. I mean, this is one of the dudes who he's standing before. Who's one of the big guys big job in Athens he gets converted and a woman named Damaris and you see how Luke again is making allusion to the women we've talked about that before and others also it wasn't just those two but others also with them so here we have a threefold response right some they mocked what did they do they reject the message some they want to further consider what has been said. And then you have third, some believe the message. And in this room today, we have exactly the same. Could I just ask you just to close your eyes for a minute, just so that you're not distracted. And just take a minute just to think about those three categories. And just honestly ask yourself, don't think about the person next to you, what category they're in. Don't think about your parents and what category they're in. Don't even think about your children and what category they're in. Think about which category you're in. Are you someone who, just like these Stoics, just like these Epicurean philosophers, you evidently think that you know better. Yet if God was to if God was to determine it so, your heart wouldn't beat. If he didn't choose it to. We'd have to call an ambulance for you in the next five seconds. Is your breath dependent on you? You don't even know how your body works. Yet you're willing to mock? You might m mock 
the Bible. You might mock Christians. You might even mock God. Are you in that category today? I encourage you to search your heart. Because God has determined the day when you will stand before Jesus Christ. And you will have to give an account for the way that you've lived your life. How about the second category? Maybe you were in the first category even coming in today. But could it be that God has affected your heart through his word? And through the, the time that you've spent listening to people worshipping God? Seeing people come together and normal people at that who love God and love one another and you thought whoa wow and God has affected your heart this this afternoon and you're thinking boy you know what I never really thought about this stuff seriously I really need to start thinking about this maybe I need to I need to hear more well I'd encourage you to to speak to God about that. Because undoubtedly he has a desire to expose himself to you. He is actually closer to you than you ever imagined. And he has a desire to reveal himself to you. Could it be that you didn't determine to be here today? It was actually God who determined that you be here today. Why not respond to him? And then we have the third category, that is those who believe, those who receive the message. And that could be you. You could be all free today. (laughs) But for those who are here and are here because they believe, they didn't come today. You didn't come today not believing, disbelieving, not sure. You're completely sure. You're convinced. You're fully persuaded that Jesus is the Christ declared and determined clearly from the scriptures and that also he's been raised from the dead and you know that that's why you took communion this morning happily even though you know you struggle with sin in your life even though we know we have a daily challenge with the flesh with the world and with the devil constantly battling But you love God and he loves you and you're convinced and you believe the message. And on that basis, you will not be judged on that day because Jesus has already taken your judgment. What you're looking forward to now is that which cannot even be explained. Eye has not seen, ear has not heard, neither has it entered into the heart of man the things that God has prepared for those that love him. Three different groups of people. Yet. Not, not 30,000 gods. One God. In three persons. And it's to you Lord God. That we, that we, we look. You're the one that we honor. You're the one that we bow before. You're the one that we worship. Not in a temple. Not in a school building. Not in a quote unquote church. We're the church. You're the God that we worship in spirit and in truth. 
And our, our desire is that you would help us to do so much more. Not just on a Sunday, but every day of the week. Because it's only reasonable. And we pray that you would continue to, to teach us and instruct us and help us to be like, maybe even like Paul. Who would be stirred when he sees evil and he would be able to find wisdom from your spirit. That's what we desire, Lord. We're so often caught in them situations, Lord, slipping. We don't know what to say. We don't know what to do. There's opportunity, but we're, we're at a loss. We, we're lacking. Lord, help us to find that secret place with you so that you can speak to us just like the Lord. Even the Lord Jesus had to do it, had to come and spend time with you. So how much more will you help us, I pray, to that end, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.